0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, September the 6th, 2023. It is currently 2.51 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now I know we've got a lot going on here on the podcast. We have a series going on dealing with sanctification and we need to get back to that. We also have a brand new series on dispensationalism. I think we've made some pretty good progress. I'm, I'm not completely happy with it. I know I'm taking a kind of a unique approach to the entire thing. My, The way I've started the series probably doesn't follow the way. I've listened to a lot of messages and series on dispensationalism, and they usually just kind of jump right in. And I'm taking this long and winding road before we really even get to the, we haven't even, I mean, what, we've done three hours of teaching Well, if you think about the series, probably five hours of teaching now, because we did the preview, we did the three hours at church, and then we did kind of an hour of sermon review, an hour plus, almost an hour and a half of sermon review. And if you take all of that together, guess what? We have not even gotten to... The actual, what, well, what dispensationalism is, we haven't even really defined it yet. So I don't, I don't know. see that. That's probably why a lot of people don't stick with my series because they're like, wait, how many hours before we actually get there? But I'm trying to lay a foundation. So that is going on. And, uh, and don't forget. We're still doing law and gospel, right? We're doing law and gospel. In fact, we're kind of redoing law and gospel, and we've spent a lot of hours doing that as well. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna get back to that for the Bible study exercise. I I don't want to start something major, but I am gonna try to do something there. I've I've got some ideas of, of a couple of things we may work on, and we may, we may, and and a lot of it may just be more. I don't know I'm gonna I mean, we're definitely not we're gonna take a break from something as in-depth as we did with Jeremiah this one will be maybe a little bit more uh you know not not quite all of that so I have to I have to think it through I've got some ideas and we'll try to get to that but today it's Law and gospel and it's thesis number seven. Law and Gospel. I am utilizing the book God's No and God's Yes: The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Um, and I, I I've told I me mean, we, we've talked about this book now. It feels like well, we started in what October of 2022. So we're we're we're, we're going to be before we know it at a year anniversary of this series. And we really, in some ways, we made it so far, and then we're spending a, a good portion of this year going backwards, but hopefully the going backwards is reinforcing and letting you hear some of the things we covered in a different way, and we're offering our own critique and challenge of that. Remember, we're utilizing the audio from Issues ETC. That's Issues ETC. You should subscribe to their podcast issues, ETC. They're doing a series as well on law and gospel. They're utilizing the writings of CFW Walther on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So they're, they're kind of covering what we've already covered, but By doing that, hopefully it's been beneficial. Hopefully I'm really, really, really getting these ideas and concepts into your mind. And we need to really, in light of all of our discussion about dispensationalism, remember this idea of law and gospel kind of serves as a system as well. And we talked about how that can be a negative thing. So let's keep that in mind. I think what we're learning is if you if you just tr- I mean I, here I think we can be honest with this. Well, I, well, I I know not all of you are going to agree with this. I think we should be honest with ourselves and acknowledge this because this was stated early on in our study of law and gospel that if you ju- if you don't have a proper distinction between law and gospel and you just try to read the Bible, it almost becomes a never ending. Books, a book and books, you know, because it's made up of 66 of contradiction, right? You're like, well, wait a minute. I'm saved by grace, but I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do this and realize all kinds of systems have been put forth to try to answer the, these never ending contradictions. The book, uh, the Bible is almost impossible to understand. And any meaningful way, I mean, put it this way, obviously the Bible is so complicated. That's why everyone has their systems. A lot of people think that there's a certain level of harmony and unity in the Bible, but I think the fact that there has been system after system after system calls into question exactly how much harmony and unity is there. And even those who hold to a proper distinction of law and gospel, even they have to admit without this idea of law and gospel, the Bible is just... Um, It's just endless contradiction. It makes no sense. Now, the question is, does a proper law, does a proper distinction of law and gospel arise from the text or are we having to impose it on the text in order to make it make it work? Are we having to take this system and impose it upon the text to harmonize the scripture? Remember, that's kind of what Schofield says in, in regards to dispensationalism. Once you distinguish the ages, then, then the Bible harmonizes. Then the scriptures harmonize. If you don't distinguish the ages, the Bible doesn't harmonize. Now, he's borrowing there from Augustine, but you get the idea. So, and a roundabout way, is the Bible hopeless without a system? Is it? Now, I think what we have to do is we have to at least consider, because I I still think we should do everything in our power not to allow the system to dictate our hermeneutic, but we're finding sometimes the difficulty in that. I, I want to believe deep down that when I read the scriptures, that the proper distinction of law and gospel, all that it is doing is it is acknowledging the reality of what is said. When you read a passage that is law, It's acknowledging you have to do that and you have to do it perfectly. And it's acknowledging you can't do that. But these other passages tell you what Christ has done for you. So the only way to understand the passages that tell you things that you can't do is to understand them in light of what Christ has done for you. So I believe it's really just, you know, I know it's a system, but I think it's a system that just tries to acknowledge the reality of what the text says. I don't know. There's something we have to struggle with because we've been talking about theological systems and we've been talking about the difficulty of that in our study on dispensationalism. But at the same time, in a sense, we're putting forth a, a system here, right? So are we imposing it upon the text? Some may say we are, but I will say this. Everyone has a system no matter how much we try not to. We just have to acknowledge that we are using a system and then try to ask ourselves, Uh, are we reading, are we really reading something into the text that's not actually there? I think it's something that we all must struggle with, okay? So, but today we're at thesis number seven. I don't want to spend an hour going back over that again, but thesis number seven, we'll be talking about that more as we work on dispensationalism. But thesis number seven reads like this. Again, this is from God's No and God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther, all right? Here is the thesis. And the third place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first, and then the law. Sanctification first, and then justification. Faith first, and then repentance. Good works first, and then grace. So what CFW Walther is putting forth, you can't just preach the word. There is an order that is required when you preach the the word. Now, see, now this... This becomes even a system to your preaching. Now, you know, I'm a little, I I stand in opposition to this to some level. I think what you do is you preach the text. I'm not going to come to the text and go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have to do it in this order. I say, I'm not necessarily a fan of that. I'm like, nope, here's the text. We're going to study the text and whatever is there is whatever we're going to find. Now, I do believe I need to be able to distinguish in the text where law is, where gospel is, but I don't think I should, uh, I should impose an artificial order upon the text. I think I should preach and read and study the text as it is given. And then I believe a proper distinction between law and gospel, so much as trying to be a system, what it's telling me to do is, hey, as you read this passage, what where is law, where is gospel? and then interpret it with a correct understanding of law and a correct understanding of gospel. But I understand it in some ways, it's still a system, but I'm trying to throw out as much of the system aspects of it as possible because this to me is all day system. Hey, you want to preach? Here's the order you have to preach it. And I, I'm, I, I am not going to impose an artificial order on the preaching of a text. I'm going to go to the text and say, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever it may be, we are in this chapter, and here we go. We're going to work through it and try to figure it out. And sometimes remember in the book of Jeremiah, sometimes I even question the order. I was like, "Why is this here? You would think like the last chapter of Jeremiah, what in the world is that? Why is it there? You would think chapter 31 would be at the end." The whole thing makes no sense, and I'm but I'm not going to change the order just to appease me or to make it easier. We had to deal with the reality of the order, right? So Let's see how they handle this. Remember, uh, Issues ETC is an actual radio program. Uh, it's obviously a podcast as well, but they have commercials, lots and lots of commercial breaks. So we are only, for each episode for us, we are only reviewing, critiquing, and analyzing the, this, you know, small segment at a time between the commercials. So this is their coming in. From the top of the hour, so they've just had a a commercial or two. Now they're playing a hymn, and then he's going to quote, I think, a stanza from the hymn, and then he's going to introduce the program.
2: So here we go. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Okay, well, obviously, (laughs) we move further
1: in our... uh, Where I had it paused, it it did not stay paused. So we're going to let this play for a second. As he's doing his Part commercial two. as he's doing his commercial, okay, I apologize for this. I guess my uh it all reset on me while we were talking okay okay hang on he's they're doing a a, a, a this commercial we could have played it's just for a podcast, but okay now I don't know the copyright on the music, so that's why I'm gonna keep this down. I don't know the copyright, okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on, here we go, here
2: we go.
0: The hymn, Preach You the Word. We have been commanded by Christ to preach His Word, but that doesn't mean we simply take the Word in hand and do with it as we please there's a way to rightly handle the word of God.
1: Okay, now see the, see the thesis, see the idea? Hey, there's, there's a right way to do this. There's a right way to do this. Now, I, I, I will challenge anyone. Does the Bible tell you the right way to do it? Does the Bible tell you, hey, when you preach, you have to do it this way? Right? I mean, that. isn't that the problem? Isn't that really the problem with the Bible? If you think about it from a human perspective, I know people don't want me to say there's a problem, but from a human perspective, it doesn't tell us how to interpret it. It doesn't give us a hermeneutical system. It doesn't even give us really a theological. It just, it just records things, right? We say these are the words of God. I believe that. It claims to be the inspired word of God. I believe that. We, we understand it to be historical. We think we can, we can prove that because Jesus quotes and cites things as being historical facts and other writers will cite something from the past and we believe those to be historical facts. We know that in many cases they seem to be predicting things that had not occurred Heard at the time of the writing, but we know in history, those things came about perfectly and exactly as predicted. So we know then that is prophecy, but there's a lot, the Bible doesn't outline, here's what you do here, and here's how you handle this, and here's how you handle this, and here's how you preach it, and here, it doesn't give us all of these rules. It's been the church and Christianity producing rule after rule after rule after rule. So again, I will say, how do I preach the text? I stay faithful to the text and ensure that the proper meaning of the text based off the words that are used and the context in which they are found is clearly communicated to the people so that they leave understanding the text, not a system, not a theology, but the text. Now that text may inform and build on a theology, but first and foremost, you're trying to understand the text.
0: Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois, I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to spend some time with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever on Part 7 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Then in hour two of Issues Etc., we'll get a biography of Ernst Lohmeyer, a 20th century Lutheran theologian killed by the Soviets. Our guest, Dr. James Edwards, author of Between the Swastika and the Sickle. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute, verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. Joy to be with you. We are going to hear a series of kind of do's and do nots from CFW Walther as we get into Thesis 7, but as important is how walther introduces this thesis
2: yeah in fact in the entire book the proper distinction between law and gospel some of the best and juiciest parts are in the way that he chooses to introduce the different evening lectures so this one was so good i just wanted to actually sort of extensively read from it for our hearers today many solemn warnings against false teachers are found in holy scripture one of the most solemn of them, if not the most solemn, is found in Jeremiah 23, verse 22, where the Lord says regarding false teachers, if they had stood in my counsel, they would have caused my people to hear my words, and then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. This shows that by teaching false doctrine, a preacher may keep souls entrusted to his care from being converted and, a result awful to contemplate, will cause them to be eternally lost. True, the people who permit themselves to be led astray by false teachings are lost by their own fault. But in innumerable passages in God's Word, God has with great earnestness warned men against false teachers and prophets and has minutely described them. Anyone, then, who despises those warnings will, in the end, have himself to blame amidst the wails of the hereafter still okay now the, first of all, it is a great passage jeremiah
1: twenty three twenty two but if they had stood in my council and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings now. This seems, he, he, now, remember, this is from a Lutheran perspective, so it's kind of sometimes in this in-between, you know, it's, it's not full-blown Calvinism, but it's not full-blown, maybe, libertarian free will. It's kind of sometimes in the middle. It sometimes is, is difficult to pin down. But here's where I struggle a little bit, because you're saying if a, if a preacher, quote unquote, preaches a false gospel, then the people cannot be saved. Now, wait a minute, That the, the people can't, so God can't save them in spite of the fact that they're hearing someone preach a false doctrine? God can't, in his sovereignty, save them? All right, now we can get into a whole discussion about that. So, all right, so we have that side of it. But then on the other side, he's like, but wait a minute, but wait a minute. Even if the pastor is preaching a false gospel, even if the pastor is preaching false doctrine, it's the people's fault for letting themselves sit there. Now, this creates the never-ending drama that we've talked about well, in our series on dispensationalism. And whenever I talk about church history, this is always so frustrating to me because on one hand, it's like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. As a Christian, we are told that you are to submit to those who have charge over you, right? The book of Hebrews tells the church member to submit. But at the same time, I'll wait, 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 church member, it's your fault if you listen or believe and false doctrine. You're to submit to those people, but if they teach you false doctrine, it's your fault because you're supposed to be checking what they say according to the word of God, and you're supposed to be judging them. Okay, well, now now, now look at this, how this dynamic works. So now you have the average person, housewife, carpenter, doctor, lawyer. It doesn't matter what they, it doesn't matter what they do, you know, doing road construction, whatever they do, lawn service, whatever they are. They're just the average person, the average lay person. Now the average lay person, now you put all this responsibility on them going, hey, 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 now you, you, you have to judge the preaching to determine if it's true and false. Now, that sounds good. And and the average Christian loves that, that they supposedly have that ability, but they usually judge on the basis of what? In-depth exegetical study of their own? Or is it because they start listening to a different preacher online, or they start visiting a different church, or they read a book and they're like, pastor, you're wrong. It's not based off deep exegetical study. It's based off, well, I think you're wrong. And in many cases, you know what this leads to. It leads to church splits, and it leads to never-ending fighting, and it leads to pastors constantly being told by someone, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. So what's the point of the pastor even going to seminary or Bible college because an average person who doesn't go to Bible college or seminary or even has ever read a book on exegetical study, hermeneutics, or anything can simply tell the pastor, you're wrong, and you're teaching false doctrine. Your doctrine is wrong. Therefore, I'm going to leave. What? Like the whole system, nobody ever thinks of the implicate. This all sounds good. Hey, pastor, if you teach false doctrine, they could be eternally condemned and it could be your fault. But wait, 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 wait. Person sitting in the pew. It's actually your fault because you allowed yourself to sit under that false doctrine. So it's your fault. Okay, wait a minute. So, so it, it's both parties' fault. Sounds good. But then how do you work this out in a practical way? Because in the Protestant world, the evangelical world, the non-Catholic world, the authority really falls. And I know we say, no, the authority is the scripture, but reality, the authority becomes the person. So the person reads the Bible. And then they determine, hey, pastor, you are, you are, you are not, you're hearing me, uh, you're not allowing me to hear the words of God, therefore, you are wrong, and therefore, I'm going to turn from you, and I'm not going to listen to you. Now, remember how this worked. In the days of Jeremiah, it was the people who told Jeremiah he was wrong, and it was the people who was wrong. Jeremiah was right. <laughs> Jeremiah, though, was by himself. The prophets were wrong. The priests were wrong. And the entire religious society was wrong. Jeremiah was right. They all got it wrong. Remember, it was the people who told Jesus he was wrong. It was the religious leaders who told Jesus he was wrong. So how how do you know when you're telling someone else that they're wrong and that you're preaching false doctrine like it, it? What is it? What is, is there any specific requirement that a person should meet before they can tell a pastor you're wrong and I'm not listening to you anymore and I'm leaving your church? Wait, is there any level? Is there is is there any requirement or they just? They can just say it at any time. Like the whole system is so broken. Because Every, everyone, I mean, just just spend a day on Christian social media. Everyone, he's a heretic. He is a, no, you're a heretic. No, you're a heretic. No, you shut up. No, you shut up. No, wh- I know what you are, but what am I? And And it sounds like a bunch of kids on a playground, everyone yelling at everyone, telling everyone they're wrong. But everyone thinks they're right. It's and in many cases, it's the average person telling pastors and seminary professors and Bible scholars they're wrong, 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 they're wrong. And it's like, okay, and you do what for a living? Your education is in what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't, I don't need it because I, I and they'll say, I, it's just uh, the Holy Spirit led me. Well, then the pastor could say the Holy Spirit led them. So then the the Holy Spirit's leading people in different directions. The whole thing is just spiritual anarchy. It sounds so good. Hey, pastor, you better preach the truth because if you don't, those people could die and go to hell and it's your fault. Hey, people, now, wait a minute. You can't really blame the pastor because really it's your fault because you allowed yourself to sit under the false teaching. So what what is required for an an average church member, just the average church member, what is required for them to be able to look at someone and say, you're wrong? Is there any requirement they have to meet? Any, any. Is there, is there like a certain, a certain number of hours of exegetical study given to the subject before they can say so? Or is it just, oh, but I did a Google search and found four articles from my favorite preacher who said you're wrong. So, Walther is like, hey, guys, 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 don't preach false teaching. Hey, at the same time, people... Hey, people, if you listen to false teaching, it's your fault. All right. So everyone go out there and figure this out.
2: This does not exculpate the false prophets and teachers who proclaim false doctrines. On the contrary, their guilt is increased because they did not only not choose the false way for themselves, but they pointed that way to souls entrusted to them. For it is written in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they that must give account. If you're supposed to obey those who watch
1: over you because I'm supposed to give an account, but somehow you're still at the same time supposed to be judging me, do you see how how does the system work in any meaningful way? Hey, you're supposed to obey me, and but 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 at the same time, you're responsible to tell me when I'm wrong and you're responsible to get out the second you think I'm wrong. But you can think I'm wrong without any real level of education or study. You can just declare that I'm wrong because you have the right to do so. At the same time, though, you're supposed to obey me and I'm supposed to give an account for you, but I really, I, I don't know why I'm giving an account for you because at any point you can just say, peace out, I'm gone. So I don't even really understand how the entire system works.
2: Alas, what terror will seize all false teachers on that great day of account when all the souls led astray by them shall stand before the judgment seat of God and raise accusations against them? What terror will seize Arius who questioned the deity of Christ and wanted to snatch the crown of divine majesty from Christ's head? What terror will seize Pelagius, who denied that a person is made righteous and saved solely and alone by the grace of God? What terror greater than these will seize the popes, who have formed all anti-Christian doctrines into a system? How they will quake with terror When the souls without number whom they have led astray and whose hearts they have poisoned will stand in the presence of God, on that day, every false teacher will wish he had never been born and will curse the day he was inducted into the sacred office of the ministry. On that day, we shall see that false teaching is not the trifling and harmless matter that people in our day think that it is.
1: Well, that's serious, and that is convicting. My, What I'm trying to get you to think about is not just, oh, that sounds horrifying, and that's horrible. I'm never going to teach. Well, whether you teach it or whether you believe the false doctrine— If it has eternal consequences, that should scare everyone because you could be, look, we saw it in the book of Jeremiah. You could be the people telling Jeremiah, you're wrong, 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 and he ends up being right. Or you could be Jeremiah trying to tell the people they're wrong, but then they don't listen to you. Or you could be the one preaching and you're the one who's wrong, And everybody say, well, and and everyone acts like it's so simple. Well, just go to the Bible and just figure it out. I mean, the Bible is the authority. I love that. That sounds so wonderful. But the people telling you you're wrong, they're using the Bible. And you are telling them they're wrong. You're using the Bible. And for 2000 years, everyone's used the Bible and no one can come to any agreement. Yet we're supposed to somehow figure out how, wait, wait, no, no, no. You're in charge, but I'm supposed to judge you. But, but I'm supposed to submit to you, but I submit to you until I think you're wrong. And then the minute I think you're wrong, I can declare you to be wrong. I can declare your doctrine to be false and I can leave your church because I, well, because I figured it out from the Bible, but I don't really have to demonstrate that I spent any extended time in actual exegetical work. All I have to do is just determine that you're wrong. And I don't have to do the study. And I don't have to do anything you ask. Because I am basically God. And you can't tell me what to do. Look, th- this this reality... You as a church member may not encounter the reality on a regular and consistent basis. Anyone who's been in ministry, you, you this is your life. You all, if you if you put sermons online or if you do a podcast, you're always going to have someone telling you you are wrong, and nobody can ever seem to articulate exactly how this system is supposed to work
0: out.
2: Ooh, I really like that last line there because it is true. People have adopted the pilot motto of "you know what is truth" and have become skeptical that there can be such a thing as clearly revealed divine truth, and that the, the the Christian is responsible for actually discerning what he's being taught is what I'm being told by my pastor in conformity with the Word of God or not. No Christian is excused from making that check.
1: Now, if no Christian as excused from making that check, right? Meaning that then really you kind of eliminate the authority of the pastor, but just think of the responsibility that you're actually putting on the average church member. I mean, the average church member, I'm just, I'm just saying you're the average church member. Really? You have to debt I mean, if you're going to be the one judging your pastor on whether what he is saying is true or false, then shouldn't it be required that the church member who's making that judgment have the same level of education Shouldn't it be required then every church member has to go to Bible college? Every church member has to go to seminary. Every church member has to have a working knowledge of hermeneutics and, and the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. And the average church member needs to know all the ba- to be able to define basic theological terms. And, and they, they have to be able to have a basic working understanding of the history of every book. And they have to be able, I mean, like, m- maybe a working knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, and they have to have at least a a freshman level, sophomore level of uh, knowledge of church history. I mean, if they're going to be judging the pastor, don't they have to have at least a, a similar level of education in order to do so? And you say, no, 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 they don't need that education because they have the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Well, then why do pastors have to go to Bible college and seminary? Because they have the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And if you have the Holy Spirit in the Bible and you're telling the pastor is wrong, well, what if he has the Holy Spirit in the Bible and he's telling you you're wrong? Nobody, ever, see, I, I know I'm the one who raises these questions and I know, see, everyone else would just listen to this and go, amen, praise God, there is absolute truth. And you're, you're right. I have a responsibility to check to hear what, I, what what I'm hearing is in accordance with God's word. And that's what I'm going to do okay well doesn 't that kind of make you the pastor doesn 't that kind of make you the doesn 't that kind of make you the the authority? Why even go to church why't just stay at home and read and study your bible
2: i i mean Walter goes on, my dear friends, heed well. What God inspired his prophet Isaiah to write. Chapter 66, verse 2. To this man will I look, even to him that is a poor and contrite of spirit and trembleth at my word. Of the men who are serving in the sacred office of the ministry and of those who are training for the same, of us all, God requires not only that we love his word, but that we also tremble at it. That is that we sincerely dread to deviate from a single letter of the divine word, that we do not dare to add anything to it or take anything from it. We are to be ready to shed our blood rather than yield a tittle of God's word. And then Walter invokes Luther. He says, choose our beloved Luther for your model. He says, I have a sensation that one passage of scripture could push me off the face of the earth. He means to say, were I to note that the doctrine which I proclaim to the people is contradicted by one passage of scripture, I should have no rest day or night. I would not know whither to flee. The situation would be too terrible for me. So strive then to have the mind of David, the royal prophet, who says in Psalm 119, verse 129, My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. Such a mind, indeed, you cannot have, at least you cannot act upon it, while you are still without a clear and thorough knowledge of all the doctrines of holy writ. For how can you keep what you do not possess? The course of study here at the seminary has been planned with the end in view of making you familiar with the entire Holy Scriptures and enabling you to understand each article of faith by itself as well as in connection with and in relation to all the other doctrines. That's the object, likewise, of these Friday Lectures.
1: Okay, well, hey, you guys in seminary, you're supposed to know all of the doctrines, all the articles, individual, uh, collectively. You're to know it all. That's what you're being trained for. But just note that when you go, the people are supposed to judge you. That would require the people then to know all of the doctrines, all the individual articles of faith, all of them combined. Because how can they judge you? (laughs) If, if, they don't know as much as you, but somehow in the modern evangelical Protestant church, that's exactly what we do. Hey, hey, you, and, and if you say that you say, well, you, they, they have every right to judge because they can do so because they have the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Then again, I would argue, why are you going to seminary to learn all of this stuff? It's meaningless. It's useless. It's a waste of time. Because anyone without even remotely, without even close to your level of education can come up and just say, you are wrong. Boom, and leave. I, I, I was just reading an article about someone who just quit the ministry uh, today. Today, um, I think he quit maybe Sunday or, or the Sunday before, but he's he's done. He's like, I'm finished. I'm never going to be in ministry again. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. And he went about all of the things he's gone through, these campaigns to remove him and church members fighting and telling him he's wrong. And they're opposed to this and this. And it's just been fight, 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 argue, 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 divisiveness, 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 divisiveness. And he's like, he's done with it. And it's like, I, I, I can see why. I can see why. Because you work so hard and then anyone at any point can just say, you're wrong and just leave. And they, and they never bother to stop to go, well, I wonder if I'm wrong. I wonder, they never come back to you and go, you know, I, I was kind of making some pretty arrogant assumptions that just somehow I know more and somehow you're just Like, like they never, rare, no one ever, ever comes back and says that. But it, you look at the system that we have created. In in the evangelical world, well, because look, if you go back into church history, and we talked about this in our study on dispensationalism, I love in some ways when all of these series works together, right? But I mean, look at look at how it works in in church history. Once Luther looked at the Catholic Church and the magisterium and the Pope and said, "Nope, you guys are wrong," right? And that damn burst. now, Luther, I, you know what, whatever his original intent was, I will, I will go with the basic idea that his original intent was to reestablish that the Bible is the authority, right? But guess what happened? As much as we want the Bible to be as the authority, everyone became an authority. Everyone became a pope. Everyone became their own magisterial authority. Cause how long did it take before someone to look at Luther and go, no, you're wrong. And then Luther was like, no, they're wrong. And then Luther wanted the Anabaptists killed. And then he, and then it was chaos. And the chaos has not gotten any better. Just thousands and thousands of different groups, church after church after church, where people come and people go. And why do they go? Because they determine that their church is false. So what's the point of going to church since you get to make the rules anyway? And people say, no, 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 no. I try to be respectful and I try to be obedient. Yes, until you hear something you don't like, and even if you keep going, you just decide that the pastor's wrong and you just decide that you're going to make up your own theology and your own doctrine. So really in, in practical everyday language, you go for what reason? Just so that you have something to judge each week, something for you to criticize each week, or do you go to make friends and have relationships and and have activities
2: which we're treating the distinction between law and gospel. For that's the paramount issue, that you learn rightly to divide the law and the gospel. Look, I'm not afraid, unless you become apostates, that you'll set up new articles of faith. But I do fear that you will not rightly divide the law from the gospel. This requires that you deviate neither to the right nor to the left, yielding neither to despondency nor to laxity. So with this heavy, beautiful introduction, Walter is warning them that a very important part of proclaiming God's word purely is to keep the law and the gospel straight. He's getting ready to go into the next thesis in which he will give you some concrete examples of how you can mush it all up and get it in the wrong order. There is actually an order in the presentation of law and gospel that he wants his students to grasp and keep clear in their heads.
0: The seventh thesis, you are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you first preach the gospel, then the law, or first sanctification, then justification, or first faith, and then repentance, or first good works, then grace. So why does the order and the sequence matter so much?
2: If you preach the gospel first, you're preaching something that is irrelevant to a heart that has not been awakened to the terror of the law. If you preach sanctification first, you're going to end up making people become proud Pharisees or despairing because they're not going to be sure of their salvation. He's going to deal with that in detail as he works his way through this. So it actually really does matter the order in which these two words of God strike and hit the hearers. And that order is always a vital one.
1: I will say the order is vital in the proclamation of the gospel in evangelism. When preaching a text, I preach the text as it is presented in the text. All right, That's the distinction I would make. In evangelism, absolutely, you got to preach law first, right? You've got to feel the weight and the condemnation of the law. Then you receive the comfort and the forgiveness of the gospel. So
2: So he starts out with the basic teaching that gospel is not to precede the law. The law precedes the gospel. And his scripture passages to show this are many, but he starts with Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the message of repentance comes prior to the call to believe the promises of the gospel. The time to do this is now. Similarly, he moves on to Acts 20, verse 21. Paul speaking here, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See the order. First thing that comes out to both Jews and Greeks, so to everybody, the message of repentance. Everyone is called to repent, and then everyone is called to have faith in the Lord Jesus. Similarly, in Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus himself said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That can also be translated that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I think that's how Luther did it in his translation and how Walter does it here. So the two things, repentance and forgiveness. But the first one is repent. That is the word of the law, the word that calls us to turn from
0: our sin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest.
1: Okay, and that ends the first segment. You saw obviously what I focused on, this never-ending problem, but right here I would just leave you with some thoughts just on this idea. When we when we tell people to repent and believe, remember ultimately we cannot repent nor believe unless God grants the repentance and the faith. So we're literally giving them law of something ultimately in a roundabout way they cannot do until God grants it. But I understand we tell them to repent in the sense we're telling them to change their and and I am going to stress this change their mind about sin and about Christ and to believe. But I believe they they will never be able to pull that off unless God grants them the f- repentance and the faith. They will never be able to change their mind or believe until God grants it. So in a sense, I believe it's it's preached as a command, but people cannot obey the command until God grants this to them, because I believe uh, people dead in their trespasses and sins cannot change their mind and believe unless God changes their mind and grants them faith, because faith is a gift of God. It is not of ourselves. Therefore, we can't boast. We can't boast of our repenting, changing our mind, and we can't boast of our believing, because all of that is given to us by God. All right, something to consider. Um, but again, you I, again there, there'll be massive disagreements on that because those who are more uh, believing in, limit, uh, you know, are in a um, are, are, are Arminian pr- pr- perspective, a, pol- a semi-Pelagian perspective, a libertarian free will kind of perspective will say, no, 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 we can repent. We can believe on our own. That's something we do. Well, then if you're doing it, then are you saved by a work because it's something you do? And I didn't say this becomes the, the never-ending debate within the world of Christianity. All right I, I wanted to I wanted to get more into law and gospel than all of those other issues that we have within Christianity, but I want you to just struggle with those realities. How does it actually supposed to work where on one hand the teacher is responsible and you're supposed to submit to the teacher, but then on the other hand, you're supposed to be one judging and determining if what's being preached is true or false and you get to make that declaration? How does that work? And then at the same time, maintain a church. And how many people in the pew really take that responsibility to themselves to really do that? Some just will just go to church and listen and whatever, right? They don't really get involved, but then do you have some of those who do get involved? How serious do you take it? And then how do you play out that serious responsibility in a way that makes the church look like something that's not like, like that actually can function, you can give me your thoughts on all of this. News, if at yahoo.com. That's news, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. We'll continue working on thesis number seven. The next time we talk about law and gospel, tonight, 7 p.m., live streaming, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We will be talking about dispensationalism. So hopefully you will tune in. And hopefully you'll benefit greatly from the discussion. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great afternoon. Hopefully you'll be tuning in tonight, 7 p.m. Central Time. All right, God bless.